Hey everyone, before the podcast starts, I just want to say that my novel A Breaking Report is now available on Amazon. If you live internationally, aka not Australia, then you have access to the hardback, the paperback and the Kindle version. Unfortunately, if you live down under, then it's only the paperback or Kindle due to anti-Australian racism. Thanks, Amazon. Regardless, just search up A Breaking Report on Amazon. That is A Breaking Report. R-A-P-P-O-R-T. I really appreciate the support as it's the culmination of five years of writing and uh, truly a labor of love. All right, let's get on with the podcast. Three, two, one, let's jam. Telling people you enjoy philosophy is like telling people you enjoy studying Latin. You either get a confused frown or the other person will start thinking you are much smarter than you actually are. And that's because philosophy has always had an air of being indecipherable, accessible only to old Greek men who wore togas, started bolting as a child and drank poison in defense of their ideas. But I've always thought that this was a self-defeating idea that was perhaps pushed by philosophers to elevate themselves above the public discourse. The reality is everything we do has values underpinning it. From what job should I choose, to who do I want to date, to should I switch to carbon-free energy. At the end of the day, all these decisions are philosophical and a reflection of what you care about. And that's what I try to do in this podcast. I, along with my guest, mourn her later, try to reclaim philosophy from the dusty whores of academia and make it not only accessible, but important to everyday life. Why should questions like what makes a good life or what is happiness or is suffering inevitable only be pondered by old German men with unpronounceable last names? That's a running joke, by the way. For this discussion, I'm accompanied by repeat guest Olivia Sun, a YouTube extraordinaire with around 400,000 subscribers. And for those who are mathematically challenged, that's around 122 Titanics, filled to the brim. She's already got a number of videos about similar topics such as the desire to be sad, the loss of architectural beauty, and our conception of love is messed up. And I thought she would be the perfect guest for this topic. Her previous appearance on the 10th episode of Safety Last, Generation Z, Memes and Stand Culture, is also my most viewed episode. So she's doing something right. So, coming back to the central theme of this podcast. Can we rescue philosophy from the clutches of old dead men? Or is philosophy doomed to live on the margins of society for the rest of time? Stay around and find out. All right. Hey, Olivia. What's happening? Hi. What's up? It's good to be back here. Yeah, finally. And, and this time with an extra 340,000 subscribers. Like, I know we talked about this beforehand, but that's like, surely that's crazy. Does your mum brag about you? Like, that's that's <laughs> that's when you know you've made it. 
<laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Like in the beginning, my parents were like, okay, you know, you can do this for fun. But yeah. now at every family friend gathering, they're like, yeah, guess what, how much money Olivia makes a month from YouTube. Um, uh, that actually reminds you of Simu Lu. So uh, Asia America's new favorite um, person, Simu Lu. Yes, he... of course. He's Canadian. <laughs> yeah, he's Canadian as well. He said that at the beginning when he first started his acting his career, his parents were like, this is horrible. What are you doing? But now he's made it. His parents are like, it's because of us. We pushed him. Simu is only successful because of me. <laughs> Sounds bad, right? <laughs> um, but honestly, like the, like the, like, let's actually just talk about your YouTube channel for, for a bit. Um, I said this before, but I just want to like say it again for the podcast having 372,000 subscribers is like crazy. And I made the analogy of like, if you could fill the stadium or like a school with the amount of subscribers you have, you would like sell out like three to four to five different stadiums. Isn't that crazy that you have such a platform? I mean, it is like, I never expected it to grow this much. That's for sure. Um, I won't be doing any stadium tours soon. That's also <laughs> for sure. But yeah, it's really weird to think about it in that like framework. Mm. So so what happens one day when you eventually get the, the invite from Joe Rogan to come on his podcast? <laughs> <laughs> oh god you know what i don't think i don't think that would ever happen because i don't seem like the type of person he would invite uh mm. no shade but mm. <laughs> no that's you know shade. Shade. Yeah. shade to you joe rogan <laughs> uh, uh, but you would accept right like if, if he reached out i i probably would but I don't know. I would. I think I would get so stressed just like trying to prepare for it, mm, so I don't mm. look like a fool and I don't mm, get attacked mm. by like Joe Rogan fans as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I remember uh, before, just before we get into the podcast and the actual topic, I remember looking at this like conservative TikTok meme, um, and this guy. It was a weird premise, but he came up with the idea of like the perfect school, and he assigned each like somewhat conservative liberal libertarian i should say uh person with like a different subject for so so for some reason i remember candace owens was assigned mathematics i don't know why uh, but <laughs> joe rogan was assigned like pe slash philosophy <laughs> like he would be the he would be like why the is, PE teacher my question is why is pe and philosophy group together like what was the what was the link here i don't know i don't know maybe he's like an ancient athenian at heart and uh, so, for some reason, these two these two fields, um, you know, intersect. But that's actually that's actually a great segue into the um, into our topic, which is is philosophy helpful? So um, you know what's interesting when, when I spoke to my friend and I said like, hey, I'm interviewing you know Olivia. Uh, my friend's first reaction, oh, is that the girl with the really sharp jawline? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so before we jump into this podcast how does it feel having the sharpest jawline in the game <laughs> i <laughs> that really took me off guard i didn't know i would ever be known for my jawline one day so um i guess thanks sponsor me <laughs> if there's ever a jawline like a product out there 
Um, and shout out to my dad as well, because I definitely <laughs> got it from him. Um, so we, uh, so the thing was, I approached you a few weeks ago and I gave you a list of 10 different topics. And the idea was, Hey, can we, let's have a podcast, but let's like reduce this 10, um, down to a single one that we're both really interested in. And the final three, including today's podcast uh, topic, which is, is philosophy helpful was, architecture is political or is architecture political and then also changing masculinity so can i ask why in particular you because you got the last pick why you found is philosophy helpful um to be the most interesting or the one that spoke to you the most yeah so i think i i usually get a lot of like messages or like dms just from people asking about like how i got into philosophy or telling me that they are now interested in philosophy after watching my videos and so a lot of people ask for like recommendations or like how to get on like a philosophical journey um so i thought that like one this would just be a good episode for like people who are interested in that to like listen to um but also i think a lot of people feel like philosophy is kind of like an outdated science like oh mm. we have science now so we don't really need philosophy or like <laughs> in my latest video there were like <laughs> i saw multiple comments being like this is why people hate moral philosophers um because you know <laughs> we always have to critique everything we can't ever like just go with our intuitions which i get can be um annoying to some people sometimes but yeah i would love to try to back up why philosophy is still useful and the reason why uh i suggested this topic uh originally was because one of my ex-students actually reached out to me and he asked a question uh which said hey can you recommend some philosophy and i remember my reaction to that was like when you mean philosophy do you mean like practical philosophy or like mm. are you really going to read like hegel the, the phenomenology <laughs> of spirit like 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 what do you yeah, mean yeah. by philosophy and and he as I expected, and you know, no shade said, uh, he wanted practical philosophy. And to me, that was really interesting. Like even this idea of philosophy can be branched out into, um, and, and I'm not saying this is correct, but this is like what the modern society thinks. So this is what pop culture thinks. There's like philosophy where like old men in like togas and white beards read. And then there's like practical philosophy, like the live, love, love philosophy. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and there's like two branches. So I even found that quite interesting. And, and I think that question eventually led me to this question, which I posed to you, which is, is philosophy helpful? So can I ask um, you from memory, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you actually do philosophy uh, as a course, as a degree. And, you know, if that's true, um, which I hope it is, but uh, why did you pick the course? And Secondly, what economic prospects do you think it will take you down the line? Apart from YouTube, which, like, I mean, I'm sure you didn't expect YouTube uh, when you first picked that degree. Yeah, so I am um, majoring in philosophy. That is one of my programs in university. And I picked it, honestly, just because I was really interested in it. I think I've been really lucky to have, like, East Asian parents who support me doing what I'm happy with um so yeah I chose it because I thought that like 
even if other people say it's outdated, I think that it's really important um, to be able to like critically think about things. Like I think what's at the base of a lot of philosophy is just being able to like push aside your intuitions, push aside what you want the answer to be and really like delve into arguments and like critically examine them, which honestly, that's a skill that you can apply to like almost everything in life. Um, And in terms of like economic prospects, I think a lot of people in philosophy, there's like two paths. You either go to law school, which is what I'm planning to do, or you go into like uh, future academics and maybe be like a prof or just like Mm -hmm. continue to write papers in the academic sphere. Well, when you say you want to go into law, like, and I ask this because I'm a teacher, so my field of study never really coincided with law or philosophy. Uh, Actually, no, I did do one philosophy class um, during my degree, but how does philosophy transition into law? So actually, um, I was, before I like went into law school, I was surprised to hear that like philosophy students did the best on the LSAT for the most part in general. And the reason why is because the LSAT, the exam that you're supposed to take to get into law school, it's not testing like any legal theories. It's not requiring you to know anything about the law. It's literally like a test about logic. So there's a section for logic games, which is very similar to a a mandatory logic class I had to take for my philosophy degree. And there's also a section about arguments where you have Mm -hmm. to determine what is the flaw, what will strengthen the argument. Um, So, yeah. Um, And personally, for me, I also like legal philosophy. So great. (laughs) Those things coincide for me. So does that mean the economic prospects is like barrister or like 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 what 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 does that mean like are are you the person then writing laws or are you the person like defending people in court like how does yeah what is the end game economic prospect oh yeah i would love to be like an actual lawyer like either a defense lawyer in criminal law or um something in family law those are probably like my two top picks right now um but i am open to like other areas because who knows what the economy will look like in the future but yeah Mm. okay that's that's interesting i actually had no idea that philosophy and law overlapped I'm i'm not sure if you've heard of this joke but anyone who takes like liberal studies or like arts or like uh philosophy they you know they end up being like Jobless? Starbucks yeah they're, they're working <laughs> at Starbucks that that's the that's the joke that you know I've heard a few times oh, I'm not no. sure you've, you've encountered I, it I hear I hear it all the time <laughs> I get it all the time but I just go nope I'm going to law school actually one of the most affluent uh, I'm making my mom proud <laughs> yeah exactly um so but when we when when I first uh, sorry when we first agreed on is philosophy helpful like the first thing that came into my mind is what what exactly is philosophy right i'm thinking like a philosopher right like what exactly mm. is philosophy let's actually define it and, and the reason why i wanted to define it is because i see almost like a blind spot in pop culture or in our understanding of philosophy I, I think it's been so dominated by like old men with beards as i mentioned before you know reading scrolls by candlelight that this is like the popular conception of philosophy you read massive tombs with like weird jargon. And yes, there is a truth to that. But at the same time, um, and I, w- I want to throw this suggestion out to you and, and see what you think about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even modern ideas like Greenpeace or like the green activist movement or the climate change mm-hmm. movement, 
it doesn't get the label of philosophy because it's so modern and it's so um, just like every, it's so political. And, and in many ways, mm-hmm. like we, uh, like our society kind of separates political and philosophy uh, as in two different fields. But I really think ideas like, like Greenpeace or like green activism is a philosophical lens. So when I say like, is philosophy helpful? Like to me, the first thing I wanted to do was like almost branch away from this idea that philosophy is like these old ancient texts that you read and you glimpse like uh, truth from it. I, I really think philosophy, and and I want to see if you agree with this definition, uh, because since you've actually studied philosophy, I've, I've always been like, you know, quote unquote self-taught. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think philosophy is really just any lens that you see the world with or anything, any, um, what's the right word? A- any ideas or any, yeah, any values which help you understand the world. So what, what do you think about that definition? And what do you think my about my example of like Greenpeace? Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree that philosophy is seen as something really ancient and then we just like kind of apply the same things to like modern day but there are like new philosophers and like new um philosophical like topics all the time um environmental ethics and just things about the environment is certainly one of them like i don't see why that wouldn't be something included in philosophy mm-hmm. um i kind of mentioned this in my last answer but i really do think like philosophy is just anything that's trying to like critically think about something um and being open-minded and really analyzing like the validity or the strength of arguments and yeah it's often the lens that you look at things through because if you're an existentialist you'll look at the world very differently from someone who's like a post-structuralist or something Mm -hmm. well can i ask you know talking about the the idea of lens like let's take this to the extreme well what because the the word lens is so it's quite vague and understandably so because you want to like use an umbrella term which covers a lot of different philosophical ideas how about someone who you know their lens or their values they really want to go to the gym and they really want to get big and they really want to be like physically attractive or or like physically big would Mm -hmm. you deem that as a philosophy because like are they they i'm not really sure it, it satisfies like the critically thinking idea but would that be a philosophical mindset that they have these goals that they really want to achieve i think that i guess the philosophical lens in that wouldn't be like the specific i want to get bigger but it might be like looking deeper like okay where does this value around wanting to get bigger come from um maybe it's because looking bigger is something that is like considered more attractive in society Mm -hmm. and then i guess the lens around that is that you care about what the majority thinks and then that might be like the main theory that's upholding all of your like views that you build on top of it Mm -hmm. um yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, have you ever heard of contrapoints the youtuber oh yeah i love her yeah hilarious like probably the funniest youtube channel Uh, There was something really interesting that she said. Um, She said that, yes, you know, I'm vain. Yes, I want to be beautiful. And then she said, however, you know, like modern society thinks of it as just like usually women or, or, you know, sometimes men who are like, you know, cutting up their face with plastic surgery. But then she goes on to elaborate like, but beauty in many ways is synonymous with like victory over death. It's synonymous with youth. 
it's synonymous mm. with like morality like you know the good characters like cinderella always portrayed yeah. very beautifully and in contrast the ugly hag is you know the the counter opposite you know the opposite yeah. to cinderella so so yeah uh, personally and, and this is my opinion like i i think it's important to extract philosophy from these like dusty hallways of like old athenian libraries and, and i really think like anything can be a philosophical lens and um just if i can expand on the on the Greenpeace uh yeah for sure I, idea a little more so have have you ever heard of ternalius have you ever heard of that term um oh yeah yeah i think i have is it an indigenous term it is not, it was applied to indigenous people but it's actually okay. latin oh okay okay Maybe elaborate a little, yeah. Okay, so terra means earth, and nullius is basically null or void. Um, and basically, this was the terminology, or this was the philosophical explanation that a lot of the Europeans used when they took over Australia from the indigenous inhabitants. And this idea came from old Greek ideas of like, you only have ownership of the land if you exploit it or change it in a noticeable way. Okay, so, wait, I remember. Yeah, I have learned about this. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, well, can you uh, continue? Like, what did your course say on that idea? Yeah, so um, I remember we had talked about this in our reading of Las Casas, which was this, um, he was this like, was he Spanish? I want to say Spanish. I don't want to be wrong, but I think he was a Spanish thinker. Mm. But it was basically during the time of like colonialism. And as you said, um, it was the justification that a lot of Spanish people used to be like, you know what, there was no sense of civilization before they arrived. Because as you said, they didn't like own the land in the way that like these Spaniards defined Mm -hmm. it. And Mm -hmm. so it was perfectly fine for them to just like take it all. Mm -hmm, exactly and if we think of that as like a philosophical mindset of like labor or or property or civilization in many ways i think greenpeace even though greenpeace falls under the political lens in it's sort of a counter to that it's a counter to the idea that humans can only interact with the land through exploiting it or through changing it or through stamping human activity on the land and and that's why i think like our modern conception of philosophy as something which is only found in old books and have weird german names um, as titles like i I just don't think that's true because if we think of terranolius and you know the greek laws and greek ideas which underpin that i think greenpeace in many ways is a philosophical counter to that that's a good point yeah i actually didn't make that connection before but that's a really good point i i think it's always Honestly, I think it surprises people sometimes to see just how many philosophical theories from, I don't know, a hundred years ago still apply like really well to today's problems. And they might not be the exact same, but they are similar in some ways. For sure. Um, So um, this is something that I I want to throw out to you. um, And I want to get your, your opinion on this. But I am someone who's dabbled quite a lot with Eastern philosophy and I've dipped my foot into Western philosophy. I've often had a criticism of the West. Um, and may- maybe you can elaborate on some of the philosophers, uh, some of the philosophy that you've studied in your course. But my issue is that I think Western philosophy is too intellectual. 
and that it focuses way too much on logic um, in comparison to Eastern philosophy. So do you agree with that? And, you know, have so what are the philosophers that you've studied? What do they say about that? Are they overly philosophical, overly logical? Um, okay. I wish I could answer this question better, but I actually haven't looked that much into Eastern philosophy before. And I partially blame my department for that because we have like one or two courses on Eastern philosophy only. Everything else is like predominantly Western. Um, but I have heard about things where like, um, for example, Western philosophy, because there's so much like focus on like logic and not having like any contradictions, you got to like follow everything logically. Um, they have like this strong resentment for contradictions, whereas um, in like some Eastern philosophy, they accept contradictions. They're like contradiction. That is a part of like existence. We can be something and also not be that thing at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um have you ever heard of a koan before? I don't think so. What is okay. that? A koan, it's a type of riddle or a poem. No, I think riddle is a better word. And it's employed by Chan Buddhism or as it's known in Japanese, Zen Buddhism. And the idea was these Buddhist monks believed that reality was too complicated to boil down into a single sentence or a single logical sequence. Mm. So for them they would purposely employ riddles which would supposedly break the reality or or it would be unanswerable, like a rhetorical question. And then the conclusion one should come to is basically that reality is way too complicated to be a logical, you know, to be defined logically and that there are contradictions and that is perfectly okay in the sense that like, I don't know, maybe a common uh, contradiction is that there is no life without death and there is no death without life or something like that. So Mm. from memory, like a pretty popular, one of the most popular koans is like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And the idea is like, I don't know. And and then, and and then hopefully the, the point is like, one will seek an answer outside like a logical or like a very rational framework. I see. That's really interesting. Mm. So the East yeah. to me like embraces contradictions um, a lot more. And, and okay, can I ask what, what Western philosophers have you studied in your course? Um, we, we've done a bunch, like, I don't know. I guess I'll just rattle off some names. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Plato, Socrates, Descartes, uh, Hume, Kant, uh, Nietzsche, Fanon, Adorno, and Horkheimer. Just who's Fanon? I, I've never those. heard of. I've never heard of. Them. Oh, um, he's like a. We've only read like one um, piece of text from him before, but it was about like his views on colonialism and like violence as a form of liberation for like um, African Americans. It was quite interesting. It was more oh, contemporary, okay. I think. Yeah. Okay, so he comes from like. Um, does he come from like a pan-African movement? Yeah, I guess he probably did, but I don't want to say for sure because mm-hmm. I've only read like one piece of text mm-hmm. um, for that guy. Yeah. Like, so I have a huge gripe of Plato. So Plato, if I ever see you, man, you know, we, we got some issues. <laughs> um, but I've got a big gripe with Plato 
And this is my opinion. So I'd like to hear what you think. Okay. I think Plato in many ways has his ideas of the platonic form has mm. really, um, and maybe I'll get you to explain, explain what actually, yeah, Olivia, do you want to explain what the platonic form is just for the audience who potentially don't know? Okay. So basically, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, the platonic forms were basically like Plato believed there was kind of like this ideal that like everything kind of had. So I think the best example is just to be like, um, oh, how come like everyone who thinks of a piece of paper, you just like have this idea of a piece of paper and it's just like one image of one that would be like the form of paper. And it's like this ideal that every piece of paper is kind of like connected to. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it's so perfect that it actually can't exist in the modern world or no, mm-hmm. not, not even in the modern world or in, in any world. And like an example that I often use is like, if you think of a chair, you might think of like four legs but that's mm-hmm. not really the platonic. And, and that's where the idea, like, you know, Plato, platonic, you know, the yeah. ideal uh, comes from. In, in the, the most perfect platonic form of a chair is really anything that's comfortable, which can be used to sit upon. And that is like the final form of a chair, which is so, like, you know, the, the most perfect version is so perfect that it actually can't exist in today's world. And I actually think that is the basis of, like, Christianity. And I think, like, a lot of Christians actually neo-Platonism because you can mm-hmm, substitute right. heaven and God for the perfect form. Um, yeah. And secondly, I actually think this chasing of perfection is one reason why the West um, sees the world in such binaries. Like you're either savage or you are, you are civilized. <laughs> it's yeah. this idea of like the platonic form and chasing the platonic form where, and this is not to say the East is not violent. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm, by right. no means am I saying that. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like the same colonial mission, the the idea to turn the world into your image, into the perfect image, into the platonic image, did not exist in. I would say not as strongly in like let's just say China because I'm I'm used to the philosophical ideas there because ideas like Buddhism and Taoism and and legalism and and the, you know. All these other things, Confucianism, like melded together and they were very okay with contradictions. So, yeah, I'm not a big fan of uh, of Plato. So I, I guess, what do you think about that? <laughs> I mean, I respect that. Like, you know, um, I think that like Plato, uh, besides being like kind of fun to read sometimes. Um, oh, he's fun to read? <laughs> I don't know. I, I kind of like his dialogue uh-huh. style. Uh-huh. I think uh-huh. it's just like after reading like 17th and 18th century philosophy, like mm. Kant or Hegel, after reading those people, Hegel I'm is like, unreadable. oh my God, dude. I'm like, oh dude. my God, Plato, I love you, man. Like <laughs> <laughs> Hegel, like uh, I remember my friend once like handed me the book uh, by Hegel, the uh, f- feminology. I'm probably saying that wrong. Am I saying that wrong? Phenomenology? Phenomenology. Thank yeah. you, Olivia. This is why, you know, this is why I brought you on um, <laughs> of spirit. Someone handed me that book and I, I just looked at it. I'm like, no way. I'm not doing it. <laughs> there is no yeah, way I'm yeah, reading yeah. this book. But yeah, uh, can, can you elaborate? So y- you find um, Plato interesting. Like, what, what do you think about my idea of like uh, what I said? I, I guess I'm kind of going back to a previous point, but like it's, it's so logical and it's so rational. Do, do you see any problems with that? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, um, I think that, like, 
part of structuring um, just like society and like knowledge on like what is rational, what is logical is actually like kind of a patriarchal way of thinking. And we've like talked about this in some of my courses uh, in my like legal courses before. Um, for example, like in a courtroom, um, when you ask the witness like questions, the witness is very much expected to just like answer the questions and the questions are supposed to like prove things. But the witness is not allowed to show like emotion. If the witness shows emotion, then the witness is now deemed to be like a biased source or maybe they're like too unstable to provide like a mm, like a perfect so perspective. Yeah, right. But I but I think that it's really weird to try to take emotion out of things like this. Um, and I think just in general, even outside of law, like there's a lot of um, perspectives that I think are missing if you try to approach things just completely emotionally removed. And I don't think it's fair to always say that someone is not like not unbiased enough if they have like some sort of emotional connection to a topic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the the video or the meme or, or the image of like these girls at like a baseball game or, or a soccer game and they were taking selfies of themselves. Uh, have you seen that, um, that footage? Oh, it's a video? I think I it's think a video. This is a meme? Mm, okay, meme is probably not the right word, but it, it's actually, meme might be the right word if you think of a meme as anything which is like goes viral. So like, oh, you know, Trump's okay. speech could be a meme because it went viral or something and it, oh, it doesn't okay, have to okay. be like a static image. Uh, but basically it's these four girls taking... Uh, a selfie at a soccer game or I don't know a sport game and the commentators zoomed up on them like the camera did them dirty because they zoomed up on them (laughs) (laughs) and then the commentators are like you know this is what's wrong with the snowflake generation like your generation sucks I'm probably ad-libbing by the way I'm probably ad-libbing but regardless (laughs) they were like they were going like hard on these girls and and what's interesting is like like that like that form of like, you know, like warmth and okay, it might be narcissistic, but that was deemed like almost like not rational. Like, you know, at a baseball game, we cheer when we win. <laughs> and then, you know, right, like, right. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I feel like, you know, when you said that example, like that popped into my head. Whilst on the other hand, if like, if a guy cries over, mm, I don't know, like his sport, his sport team loses or something. Or like, uh, I'm not sure if you followed the basketball, um, but yesterday, like the Golden State Warriors beat the Boston Celtics. And there was this image of like this guy who got a Boston Celtics tattoo, like, you know, we'll win the championship or something. And um, Mm -hmm. like, he was like, oh, this is a real fan. Like, this is real emotion. So uh, yeah, I wonder if there's also, as you said, there's like a gender component to it as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that like, I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard of this before, but I think a lot of people have talked about how um, sometimes the passion from, like, women is seen as, like, hysterical or, like, crazy, but, like, passion coming from, like, males um, is not seen in the same way. For example, Can you give me an example? Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, uh, girls being really, like, passionate fans about a boy band versus, like, men being really passionate fans about, like, a football team, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. So, and as you were talking about this, like the logical way to like celebrate a goal or something, it kind of reminded me of um, 
like Hegel's idea of everything having like an internal set of logic. I don't know if you ever heard of this before, but he kind of had this idea where like in in things there's like a certain type of logic that it has um and so there's like a logical way to kind of like follow to do things in like a family versus like a political uh forum etc but I, I guess my counter to he- hegel um which he can't respond to because he's dead but my counter to <laughs> hegel would be like isn't isn't that norm so socially constructed like what like, for example, uh, this is something that I, I mentioned recently. A lot of Greeks, when they get married, they smash dinner plates. Uh, mm-hmm. They like they just throw them like money. Like, they just toss them everywhere. I've seen videos of people right. like, holding like 10 plates and smashing it like at once. So they're really liberal with destroying, um, you know, uh, these plates. But like, that would be seen as like irrational or illogical, right? To Hegel, who comes from mm-hmm. like, uh, who doesn't come from that tradition. Yeah, I mean, I I can't say I agree with him. It was just like what it reminded me of. Um, And so I think that's just like another example of how Western philosophers really try to like logically explain things. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, on the other hand, this is something that uh, I I recently went to a, what's it called? A colloquia or something like that. And have you ever heard of that term? Colloquia? colloquial uh, is it I, like a meeting I, but casual <laughs> okay i i think that's how you say it you know my pronunciation is horrible and my spelling is horrible so so that's <laughs> probably how you say it um all i know is this guy changed the facebook group to this and he, no one ever said it out loud so i i don't know how to pronounce okay. it okay <laughs> i don't think i got it right then i'm not really sure but but what happens there is someone comes to this topic they speak about it and then like good ancient athenians we disband into our little groups and then we speak about the same topic. And then someone once talked about this, like uh, this idea of like Plato and and platonic truth and the idea of perfection. And my counter argument to that was, uh, and I raised my hand and I spoke to him. Well, what's the point of like searching for a platonic truth when there is no such thing as a platonic truth in our world? Is that like searching for like uh, Atlantis or something? It's just a mythical, you know, like a mythical make-believe thing like you know searching for the perfect body or the perfect face or the perfect insert whatever uh the Mm -hmm. even if we take like political movements like communism and and capitalism in many ways are trying to go for the utopia like this is the perfect society if we implement these perfect things but you know in reality just humanity is a little more complicated than than that and the response from the person is whilst there is no perfect at the same time, this pursuit of perfection is what like underpins things like bridge building. Like this is the perfect bridge um, mm-hmm. because it uses architectural, I don't know, uh, truths or like, you know, the triangle is stronger than the circle or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So that was his response, which kind of stumped me in a way. Like, so even if, if the pursuit of perfection you know whatever perfection is you know and and that's a very that's a socially loaded word but there is still some value in pursuing the perfection even if it's not possible What, what do you think about that well i think that it's interesting that whoever responded to your comment said that perfect bridge equals like okay there's like a certain way to like draw the triangles or whatever um but i feel like perfection as i think you pointed out depends on like how you define it 
like perfect in terms of like its strength, perfect in terms of aesthetics. Um, maybe they're talking about perfection in terms of like everything has to be perfect or there's like a perfect balance between all of them. Like, I don't really know. And I guess it kind of depends on what you mean by like a perfect bridge, first of all, which I think is a really hard question to answer. Mm, mm. Well, basically, get wrecked, Plato. <laughs> we have just we have just defunct you. Western philosophy, get out of it. Yeah, I know. Delete that section. <laughs> uh, um, so, there's something else that I, I want to mention, and I actually want to read you this section um, from an old university essay that I dug up. Have you ever heard of the name? Heidegger? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. What have you heard about our old friend Heidegger? Well, of course, I know the infamous uh, info that he was a Nazi. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Besides that, I know that he was a big proponent of like phenomenology. Mm -hmm. Um, Which, you know what, can I get you to explain like, you know, this is not only for the audience, this is partly for me as well. Like, what on earth does that like 15 letter word yeah firstly i can't pronounce it which already makes me hate it secondly like (laughs) (laughs) secondly like what what exactly what exactly is it okay so um i was actually reading up on a bit of more phenomenology the other day and i think like one of the best definitions that i found was just saying that like phenomenology is about like just describing our conscious experience it's not like analyzing it it's just trying to give like a direct description of what our consciousness experiences um and then from there it kind of looks at how our direct consciousness um affects how we interact and perceive the world is that like hume in the sense that Hume, like, is someone who says, like, you can only understand the world through practical experience. Is, is that is that relevant by any chance? Um, hmm. I don't think so. I think phenomenology is more so like, um, okay, I guess there are like two examples. You know the channel Philosophy Tube. Do you know I that channel? I am pretty sure I'm subscribed to it. Um, wait, is that with the Abigail, Abigail? Thorne? That's, yes. Yeah, yeah, I am. By the way, I, I just want to say uh, this might be controversial, but I feel like, you know, hey, no shade, Abigail, you're not going to listen to this, but I feel like <laughs> she has really jumped onto the contra points, like the set pieces and stuff. But I just, and once again, Abigail, no shade. You have millions of people who love you, but I just don't think she's as funny as contra points. Uh, okay. I think contra points is so funny, but anyway, I'm not sure <laughs> if that's a hot take, but yeah, go, go on. I don't know. You might get attacked after you release this now. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, That's getting cut. (laughs) (laughs) Redact that. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, she gives two examples before. It was in two different videos, but I think this might help. So, like, one example she gives is, like, okay, I have this, like, letter in my hand, you know, um, to, like, you, it might just be, like, some random-ass letter. Who cares? It's boring envelope. But to me, I know that it's a letter from my, like, long-lost lover. And so I treat this letter, and I have I have automatically attached a sentimental value to this letter, um, even though the, like, objective object that's in my hand is, like, the exact same for you or me. So, so does that mean it's an anti-materialist? Is that even a, is that uh... even a term? In the same well, sense, like, sorry, go on. 
Well, I don't think it's anti-materialist. Like they still, they still like recognize that these objects exist. Um, but it's like how these objects are kind of like positioned to us really depends a lot on like our conscious experience. Um, yeah. Or like she gave another example of how she was holding a hammer and then she asked the camera to kind of like pan around her and you can only ever see one side of the hammer at a time but yet you know that the hammer is there as a unified whole you don't have to like rationally come up with an argument like okay there was one side here then there's another side and therefore that must mean it was a unified whole like no you just automatically somehow know that it mm. was one thing yeah mm-hmm. that that's that's really interesting um that word which i can't pronounce phenomenology <laughs> there we go For my- yeah that was great I don't think I can strike gold two times in one video, but that word, <laughs> um, the, I, I think, was it Schopenhauer? Okay. Now we're just throwing around, you know, old, old dudes, uh, for the sake of it. <laughs> Schopenhauer actually hated Hegel. Um, and he hated Hegel because he, that, that idea of like, it's a subjective feeling. So like the letter or the, or the hammer, you can only recognize like, well, let's take the hammer because I think that's really applicable. But like, if you circle around the hammer, you only see one one side. Schopenhauer actually hated Hegel because of that, because he felt that Hegel had actually moved philosophy away from like universal truths. Do you mean Heidegger or Hegel? Sorry, I was confused because you were talking about Heidegger earlier. Yeah, so yeah I no, wasn't sure. It, no, it was, it's actually Hegel, but okay, um, okay. So he hated because Schopenhauer, like Heidegger came back, was like 150 years after or 100 years after Schopenhauer. But but just on the topic of Hegel, like Schopenhauer and Hegel, like uh, they they had a lot of beef or really Heidegger hated Hegel. Um, no, sorry, not Heidegger. Now, now all these old German guys ruining my brain. Schopenhauer <laughs> <laughs> hated Hegel <laughs> because, uh, sh- yeah, like I said, Schopenhauer believed that hate. Oh my god! But Hegel was moving philosophy <laughs> in an uh, away from universal truths. So yeah, that, that's interesting. That um, a, a lot of Marxists are actually Hegelians or have uh, or come from the Hegelian school of uh, of thought. Yeah, actually, going back to oh my god, too many guys that that <laughs> it's like a tongue twister. Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, but going back to Heidegger, this is something that I wrote in my university uh, course. So I'm just going to read the, the, the beginning. And, and this to me summarizes my issue with philosophy or West, I should say Western philosophy. Um, so this is what I wrote at, at the very beginning of my essay. Martin Heidegger's The Origin of the Work of Art attempts to explore the metaphysical aspect behind things and their thingliness. In particular, his essay focuses on the difference between equipment and art, the uses of these differences and the consequences. By exploring the thingliness within both equipment and art, Heidegger touches upon many important and recurring concepts such as aletheia, existentiality, and the rift between earth and world. Heidegger wishes for us to move away from the traditional Western view of the subject-object dynamic with the object having agency and the subject purely being a recipient, recipient of that will. Instead, Heidegger argues for the being of all things and all human experience involves the sacrifice of the subject which willingly gives itself up to the object human slash human in order to create a new reality. 
That is not a flex. I, I did not read that out to flex. <laughs> I read that out because um, I'm not sure if you have this reaction, so I'd like to get, get your perspective. But to me, a big part of like, and I remember sitting in class and having this lecture about Heidegger where he actually wrote like a chapter and he dedicated like 10 pages to defining the thingliness, the, the most, the essence, and he called it the thingliness of a cup. And he said a cup mm. was only a cup when it, oh my God, when it like, when it allows itself to be filled with liquid and this, it's only a cup if it has like a certain purpose or something like that, I'm butchering it. But basically when I heard that, I'm like, yeah, but like, who cares? <laughs> like, like, yes, maybe. But like, how about like suffering? How about pain? How about like life and death? So anyway, maybe I'm doing Heidegger dirty, but what's your response to that? Like, that's what I think about. Like, it's so rational. Like, I don't mm-hmm. care if a thing, if a cup's essence is like, it has to be filled with a certain liquid or something like that. Like, yeah. What do you think about that? No, I I understand how you feel because um, it sounds very like metaphysical, the questions that he's asking. We're like, what is a cup at its core? Um, And, you know, personally for me, I also did not enjoy my 17th and 18th century like metaphysics, metaphysics class this year because, you know what? I don't care, Kant. Like, I don't care why (laughs) geometry is like, what did he even say? I don't even remember. He had something to say about like geometry and he was trying to prove stuff about it with like space and time and talking about atoms. And I was like, yeah, this is not important to me. But I do know that, for example, my TA, she cares a lot about this stuff because she's like- What does TA mean, sorry? Oh, a teaching assistant. It's Mm -hmm. like the people who run tutorials, yeah. She cares very much about it. Um, She's like, you know what? A lot of people don't appreciate and don't get the importance of metaphysics. And I was like, yeah, me. Um, (laughs) And and she was like, but it's like exploring the building blocks of like existence and just the world in general. It's like trying to figure out what our world even is. And that's like the foundation for like, future questions like okay if we know what is only then can we ask what should we do um, with this Mm -hmm. so I can see like where it comes from um, but I do think there are maybe like the cup example I don't know he was trying to like do some like random like object that was easy to understand to prove a larger point I don't know but I I understand why sometimes it feels a little like okay why are we doing this (laughs) Yeah. So to that, I guess my response is like, okay, maybe Heidegger was using the cup example for the sake of being like edgy. Like let's let's analyze <laughs> a cup. Like let's find uh-huh. the most mundane thing. And if we can find significance in that, we can apply that to really anything else in the world. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, and this is just something I feel as someone who um, is more into Eastern philosophy, but you know, Eastern philosophy is not the only one that does this. I think Stoicism also talks about like, quote-unquote practical you know quote-unquote practical philosophy and and even nature I, which i love i love your nature uh you're pro- you're one of my favorites if not my favorites i love him too yeah, yeah i love nature man anti-nature nature social club someone <laughs> sign me up i'm a huge fan <laughs> of nature but back to my 
uh, original point. So from a Buddhist lens, I would approach Heidegger and I would say like, okay, even if you've defined the essence of a cup, have you escaped suffering? Do you still feel pain? Do you still feel attachment? And I think that's, that is what the Buddha's response would be. Like, yes, you have defined the outward essence of cup. And, and I think that's something that Western philosophy does a lot. It Western philosophy categorizes the, the outside world. It really seeps into the outside world. Like, you know, what is this? What is metaphysics? But mm-hmm. I think Eastern philosophy, uh, and I think it appeals to me more, it deals with the inside. So who am I? Like, like what is suffering? And, and obviously, I'm not saying it's a black and white. I'm not saying Western philosophy right. never deals with the internal world. And the and and Eastern philosophy never deals with the external world. But I guess my response to Heidegger is like, or the Buddha's response maybe would be like, do you still suffer? Are you still attached to like things which cause you pain? And if so, like what's what's the point of knowing like a cup is you know X Y Z instead of you know something else? Yeah. Well, I think maybe. Um, I don't know. I can't know for sure that Heidegger would say this, but I think he might just say like. Yeah, those are good questions, but that is a different branch of philosophy than the one that I'm looking at. And honestly, I think that might be his answer. Maybe he'll just be like, yeah, we we can think about what the essence of things are, but like suffering also important. But those two things require like different arguments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think that might be a fair response. I I guess just as someone who's so so into Eastern philosophy and, and for me, there's such a big divide between like, logic that's man now now i'm kind of jumping back i was about to say like there's such a big divide between logic and emotion but i also don't think that's like necessarily true um have you heard of the youtube video where uh who was it i think it was sam i think it was sam harris i don't know it was someone who said that like someone who got into a car accident and the uh emotional side of his brain I'm probably butchering this example, but like part of his brain got damaged. Mm-hmm. And then when he was asked like, Hey, like, can you choose a time to like meet with your surgeon or can you meet, choose a time to meet with like your best friend? He was actually unable to do so because the idea of like, I would prefer that day actually like he, he didn't really have an opinion anymore. His emotional side is like, you know, I was taken out or destroyed. And because of that, the, the, the logical decision of like, let's choose Saturday because I'm the most free no longer applied mm-hmm. because the i the feeling of like being tired or something like that or, or, or prioritizing a certain emotion did no no longer existed so i actually don't really think the logic and emotional can always be separated anyway into like two cleanly defined spheres that's a really interesting example i've never heard of that before but um yeah that that's a good example and i agree that it's not always like clear cut you know um And I think that, like, I really hate when people try to make it clear cut, especially in, like, political discussions nowadays, where it's like, oh, I'm going to destroy you with facts. And that's how you know I'm right. Call him out. Say the name. (laughs) Say the the guy who said facts don't care about your feelings. Just just say it. Do it, Olivia. Call him out. You want to watch my video that I made about you? (laughs) (laughs) And actually, interesting enough, I think that's the... That video was the first time I saw your channel, and I think that's actually why mm. I contacted you. Um, and on on that topic, just if we go down the facts, don't care about your feelings, uh, that that idea. I remember speaking with this uh, friend of mine recently, and she said she actually saw like a pipeline between like New Age atheism and like right wing ideas, like oh, Sam Harris, sure. 
and stuff and which i think your video talks about because there's this idea of like the rational like the hyper rational in new age atheism and um yeah people like thunderfoot um and uh, the amazing atheists like they, they are quite like right or libertarian yeah 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 no i've definitely noticed that trend myself as well um i might have even been privy to that a little bit like i was a i was quite a big fan of like sam sam harris um back in those days mm, yeah me too uh, yeah, i think that's just a like an unfortunate hurdle that everyone <laughs> has to cross because yeah, <laughs> I, I was in that exact uh, exact situation before so can I ask, who are your favorite philosophers? And, you know, the the topic that we were trying to deal with is like, how is philosophy helpful? Okay. So I don't know if this is like favorite as in they're like the best philosophers ever, but I will say that the people that I think have impacted me the most and that I think I apply to my life the most is probably like Nietzsche and Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, mm-hmm. those three. Okay, yeah. so I, I know quite a bit about Nietzsche. Uh, Sartre, I don't know that much apart from like he wasn't a big fan of... No, he was friends with Camus and then he wasn't a fan of Camus. They had they had beef. Okay, <laughs> what, why did they have beef? Is it... I'm not sure if this is true, but like apparently Sartre was like jealous because... I'm not sure if this is true. Okay, this might be like internet rumors, but like because Camus <laughs> was quite handsome. Is that true? You know what? I don't know. I don't stay up, I guess, enough on like existentialist gossip, but maybe I should catch up on like the tea. So, but, but why did they have beef then? Yeah, so I can't really remember exactly what it was anymore because I heard about it a long time ago. But I think basically Sartre and Camus used to be friends because they were both part of like this existentialist and absurdism movement. And there was like some sort of like point that they like disagreed upon and i think that just kind of led to a falling out for the both of them talking on sart and existentialism this is something that i actually wanted to bring up before but it slipped my mind so um i guess i'm glad that you brought it up there was a period of time a few years ago when i had like real existential crisis you know i, I wasn't even in my 50s and i was i had existential <laughs> crisis I couldn't believe it like who gets existential crisis at 20 like Not come on like, everyone who gets <laughs> but i i was like oh life death like am i just a tiny pin drop in the world of mm-hmm. you know atoms and my life doesn't matter and this stuff was really weighing upon me and like the, the reason why and, and this is just my bias so, so i'm not saying that my ideas are, have any philosophical truth but i was i knew that that death was i, I guess inevitable but mm-hmm emotionally i had not recognized that or i had not come to terms with that so so what i guess what i'm trying to say was like when i had my existential crisis about uh the inevitably of inevitability of death it was a it was like an emotional problem in a, in a way and reading like logical philosophy like oh you know you will die and then you'll be an atom that gets changed into another atom like mm-hmm. that to me didn't solve my emotional fear and I think that's why I gravitate towards like Buddhism or Taoism so much because, yeah, I, I just don't think I was able to overcome that emotional fear with a logical understanding of, yes, you will die because I knew that beforehand. And uh, yeah, so that, that that was actually why I read books like, you know, The Myth of Syphysis, um, which is actually one of the chapters in, in my, in a novel I released, I actually called it Syphysis because um, oh. just to talk about the idea of like, 
you know, pushing and struggle. But have you ever logically understood something but not been able to emotionally come to terms with it or something? Um, I think that might explain, honestly, like, a lot of, like, rational philosophy. Um, like, you might read an argument and you'll be like, okay, this, like, sounds good, but... I don't think it really like satisfies my emotional troubles and I totally get what where you're coming from. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of like <laughs> this stereotype um, where boyfriends will give girlfriends like logical problems oh, to yes. their I've heard this. <laughs> solutions to their emotional problems, right? Yeah, so it's it's definitely a whole thing that people deal with and I'm sure like that's why the types of texts that help some people might not help as much for others and that's totally valid in my opinion have you ever been the recipient of like that super logical advice when you simply want someone to be like yeah 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 like like has that ever happened to you hmm okay let me think for a second i'm sure it has happened but i'm just trying to think of like a specific example maybe um do you feel like they're unempathetic do you feel like they're purposely rational in a time when perhaps you need something else I mean yeah I think so for example um you know what I I can't remember now if I'm just making this up in my head (laughs) but or yeah this has definitely happened so like when I was younger um you know I'd be like really insecure about my skin because I had like really bad acne when I was like 13 and 12 and stuff um I would get like, I remember getting really frustrated about it one day when like I was grocery shopping with my parents because every time I told them like, I kind of want to do something about my skin. I really hate the way I look. They would just tell me like in a very logical way, it's going to go away when you're older. It's only here because you're younger. You know, what people say about you and how you think about yourself right now won't matter in the future. And I think the problem with like hyper rational or just like rational solutions to like emotional problems is that um, I already knew that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like I knew that it would probably go away in the future. I knew all of the rational reason behind it. Um, And so them telling me what I already knew wasn't really solving it. And I think it's just like sometimes even when we know like the rational explanation for things that isn't enough to like overcome how we feel about something and maybe that's just like instincts we have i don't know (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you you know what's what's interesting the male perspective to this idea of like oh the girlfriend comes and you know tells me a problem the male idea is like why doesn't she want to fix it like i'm giving her ideas like plans to fix it why (laughs) why doesn't she want to fix it but i'm sure the girlfriend's like why doesn't he care like doesn't he care about my emotions or something like that but yeah 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 so you also mentioned Simone, once again. This yes, is another. Simone de Beauvoir. Thank you. Okay. Every time I like, I mentioned Simone, you will finish off the last part because I, I, can't, gotcha. I can't do it. But for Simone, I'm just going to call her Simone, S-Dog. For mm-hmm. S-Dog, um, she, <laughs> from what I've read, she is quite against modern feminism. I'm not sure if... I've misread her. I'm not sure I've only read sections and maybe um, maybe I've misinterpreted her. But she is quite a gender essentialist, isn't she? And I think she says a phrase, and if I'm wrong, I apologize to Judith Butler and everyone else out there. <laughs> but I think Simone says, like, the reason why there, is, there isn't a 
female Jack the Ripper isn't is the same reason why there isn't like a male I don't know Marilyn Monroe I don't know I'm making that up but like isn't yeah. she quite gender essentialist mm, you know what I don't I never read her that way and maybe I just haven't read um parts of her that have ever brought that up so yeah maybe she is and I just didn't know that but I um I liked Simone de Beauvoir a lot because you know, I liked existentialism from Sartre. And then when I read Beauvoir's work, it was like a feminist lens on existentialism. Like it not only talked about like freedom for like everyone, but it also talked about like how, um, like if you're a woman, what makes you a woman is not like the biological things you have in you, which I guess is not really gender essentialist. I don't know. Um, but she's like, yeah, it's not really the like biological things that make a woman. It was something like society is losing womanhood. Like women are losing womanhood because people had like this idea of like what woman is supposed to be. And she's like, no, just like existentialism for like men, women means that like there is no like set woman that you're supposed to be. And in fact, like the women need to stop feeding into like um social uh, gender norms around like women even if it feels easier that's completely that's completely anti-essentialist like if, if that's true then then yeah uh, maybe i've been reading something else but didn't simone um s dog say that um <laughs> <laughs> say that i can't believe i'm doing this I, okay i'm so sorry simone i can't I did. <laughs> Didn't Simone say that like being a woman is inherently different to being a man? And maybe this is further boosting or, or supporting my idea of being like, you know, uh, she's a gender essentialist in a sense. Mm. Didn't she make the reference that like even the way that men and women uh, sleep with each other is different? Did she say that one act is penetration and one act is to be penetrated? And that itself yeah. means our understanding of like the reality or like, the physical world or relationships is inherently different. Is that true or am I, mis- am I misquoting that? Yeah. No, no, no. I'm, I'm pretty sure that was her when she, like, talks about, like, love in her work. Um, I think, like, her and Sartre shared, like, very similar views on love, which is why I'm actually pretty sure that, like, they didn't date. Like, people are like, oh, they were together, but both of them believed that, like, love was a failed project. Like, it would never, like, work. So, yeah. It was complicated. Why, why was it? <laughs> why was it a failed project? Like, what made love um, failed? It to summarize, it was basically like um, everyone is a subject, and as a subject, you automatically make everyone else this like other. Um, so everyone else becomes an object, but then at the same time, you also want to be the object of the subject, and so there's always going to be like this conflict between being the subject versus being the object, and you can't be both. So yeah, <laughs> what is is that basically like the old school way of saying like I'm the main protagonist of this world? Is that basically <laughs> what it's trying to say? Like I'm the main protagonist, and no, and everyone else around me needs to understand that they're secondary characters. Is that is that the equivalent? <laughs> you, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that what you mean when you say like I am the object? Like I am the Right, I'm not misquoting you, right? Like, I am the object, yeah. I am the person in charge, and everyone else is a sub- subject. Doesn't that mean they take a secondary role? Like, their worth is only 
they only worth something when we interact with each other. Is that true? Um, I I don't think it's about like worth. It's more so just like uh, it's kind of like an idea of like consciousness, like you are the conscious subject and so you can't have the conscious experience of others around you and so it's like by that they kind of think like it's inevitable that other people become like others um but i they don't say that other people's lives now mean that it's like less worthy than your own yeah talking about the is philosophy helpful you take from simon simon uh, that she's an existentialist, which I'm assuming that you are an existentialist. Um, is that correct? I, w- I would probably say so. Like, um, I want to look more into like postmodernism because I think there's some interesting ideas in there. But for now, I say I'm an existentialist, um, not only because I think it has good ideas, but also because I it's just appealing to the way that I would like to live my life. Mm-hmm. I like to live my life feeling that I have absolute freedom um and because it makes me feel like nothing's out of my control um and so it makes me like motivated to just like take control of my life Mm -hmm. i would consider myself an existentialist as well or maybe an absurdist uh, but i really think they they are quite similar and i remember this one time one of my friends was like getting into a heated argument about like is there free will basically sam harris's favorite topic is there free will Mm -hmm. and I just remember thinking, like, who cares? Like, like, I guess that's just my reaction. I was like, who cares? Like, even if there isn't free will, every day that I live, like, it's like a surprise to me. Like, I'll interact with someone and maybe we are chemically wired in order to, like, you know, hate each other or like each other. But to me, it's a a new interaction. And and I think I choose to be an existentialist um, also because, well, firstly, I love nature. and, And secondly... I just think it's such a positive way to view the world. And and I think, and, and I, w- I want to get your opinion on this. Like, I think a lot of people see nature as like this edgy, like, you know, God is dead. But I, I think yeah. he's so far from that. Like he, to me, is like an existential. Like he's like a, I love him. So, so yeah. Can you talk about yeah. like our favorite German boy? Yes, nature? of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, first of all, nice mustache. He was always rocking like the walrus stash. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Did you hear that? Did you, I'm not sure if this is true, but apparently Nietzsche was someone who just ate like kilograms of fruit every day. Have you ever heard this? I have not heard of that, but it doesn't surprise me. I've heard some very like crazy <laughs> things about this guy. <laughs> such as? Um, such as like he had like sex with like a man and then he got like some sort of disease from it and then he just spent the rest of his like dying days like sick in his bed from this and there was also something about a horse involved but i literally have no clue what it was now <laughs> okay yeah it was Nietzsche's crazy guy it's crazy yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but w- what do you like about nature and, and what speaks to you about him yeah so first of all i like completely agree that like he's always mislabeled as a nihilist which is just like not true to me like he was like really a pioneer of existentialism um and yeah you know i was even watching this like youtube video today it was about like dissecting the manosphere and it was a great video like i really liked it but the dude called nietzsche nihilist and you know i was like no no dude come (laughs) on Nature 101. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So 
I think the problem is that like so many people misunderstand him and so many people who present his ideas also misunderstand him, which is why he's so often associated with like the alt-right and like neo-Nazis. Um, but I honestly think that he has like such great tools to become just like a more open-minded person and to just like approach life more positively because once you realize that, you know, there isn't like this absolute set of morality that was like that just exists out there and once you realize that like you have so much freedom in life it really is liberating Mm -hmm. and i I just want to say for the audience just in case you are not familiar with these terms because i know we're throwing all these big words words that i can't even pronounce like all these big words around (laughs) but existentialism is this idea which I, i think schopenhauer might have there I go again, throwing around big words. But <laughs> I think Schopenhauer might have been the pioneer and then Nietzsche was a, a big, big stepping stone in that. But mm. it's the idea that in a world where religion has slowly faded away from existence, uh, with Abrahamic religions also came like a very defined set of morality. But with the fading away of religion, there was a need to like replace that morality with something mm. else. Um, and Nietzsche, and basically existentialism argues that there is no overriding set of moral values which God or a deity has given you. It's up to everyone to find their own personal reason to live. And I think like one of the quotes is like, you are born without a purpose and you have to find the purpose in life. I, I think I'm butchering that. It was much, it was much more succinct uh, in the book. But um, do you think Nietzsche's ideas of like, his idea of like slave morality, of like how... He, he believed that Christianity was slave morality and how like it emphasized virtues of like suffering and pain, which is how the weak in society got back at the, got back at the powerful. Do you think mm-hmm. Nietzsche's ideas, if you adopt him, and I say this as someone who loves Nietzsche, can lead to a potential dog-eat-dog world where like the only thing that's right is might? I mean... I guess I can see how his work might be misinterpreted because it has in the past, um, albeit his like Nazi sister played a big role in that. Um, his sister was a Nazi. Oh yeah, yeah. The reason oh, why no his work got adopted by like Nazis was because his sister took his work when he died and was like, "Hey guys, um, <laughs> look at this stuff." Hey yo, um, <laughs> check this <yeah>. out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and. I think like you know i think he used like jews like twice as an example in his work um which you know again uh doesn't read like very favorably <laughs> especially in those times so yeah i think sometimes he can be misunderstood and that's kind of on him at times but like i also think people might just misread him uncharitably as well um do you think that's on purpose? Is is that what you mean? Well, I, at times I think it is. I've met people and I've like read about things online where people are like, "Oh, Nietzsche, oh, the edge lord, like, you know, <laughs> oh no, that's what he is." No. So <laughs> there, there's a quote from Nietzsche which I have in front of me, which I think is just fantastic. So Nietzsche was someone who really was in a lot of pain in his life, and he argued like the the only way to overcome the pain is through human willpower, through exerting yourself and like having to find goals and chasing them. And please correct me if, if I'm if I'm wrong in any of, any of these respects. Um, and Nietzsche wrote 
something which said the Trigean or the tra- the Trigean, I guess that's a word mm-hmm. he makes up. Like the person who who like toils in tragedy raises the drink of sweetest cruelty to him alone. So he really argued about the overcoming of like pain or, or something through the human will. And ha- have you read Thus Spoke Zarathustra? Uh, no, I haven't, but it's like on my reading list to read yeah, very same. soon. Me too. Yeah, <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I-, I would say Nietzsche is a must read. And his ideas of like the self overcoming, uh, like being the Ubermensch, and I don't mean that in like the Nazi me- method of like yeah. be- having blue eyes or something. Um, I just think he's incredible. I love him. I love him so much. <laughs> agreed, agreed. I think he's got like a really great work. Um, yeah, it was his book on the genealogy of morality was one of the books I read in my like first level intro to philosophy course. I think that was probably one of my favorite books that I read mm-hmm. um, in that course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you, so you say you're not that familiar with Eastern philosophy, but have you ever heard of things like um, Taoism? I have heard of it. I've listened to, um, you know, Philosophize This, that podcast. Yes, I do know that. Okay. So I've listened to like Stephen West, the host. He did like podcasts on like some Eastern philosophies. So I have listened to those, but it was like a really long time ago. Um, so yeah, I, I honestly can't say I remember much. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'll, I'll leave with this because to me, like, Taoism is also something that's like impacted my my life. There's two things which I've gained from Taoism, which is firstly like the natural world will will sustain itself or will prevail in a way, and and I include humans as part of the natural world, and I include disease as part of the natural world, and death and suffering and all these as part of the natural world, and, and that itself will like prevail. That sounds really grim, I think, from an Abrahamic method where like mm-hmm. a lot of Abrahamic religions is like you know, God gave you the Garden of Eden to like, you know, shape the world or, you know, God gave you control of the creatures and stuff. But something else uh, I love in Taoism, um, have you ever heard of the the first line in Taoism? Uh, what is it? The first line in the book, the Tao Te Ching. Um, say it because I think I might know it. Uh-huh. It is the, the way that can be, or the Tao that can be named is not the internal Tao. Okay, right. Yes, yes. I remember this. And uh, for anyone who's just like a little confused, like Tao is the Chinese word for like method or like path. And you actually can see this word in like Bushido, like um, the way of the warrior, uh, Bushi in Japanese being the warrior. And the Tao that can be named is not the internal Tao is basically saying that anytime you try to put something into concrete terms, like for example, like the Ten Commandments, like these are the Ten Commandments, which is permanent, unchanging you have lost the most important thing in nature, which is fluidity or flexibility. And and what's interesting is like, this is probably the only text that I've seen where it even deconstructs itself. Because if you, it, uh, to me, my interpretation is if you follow the book or Taoism too much, you've also cemented it as a concrete abstract that cannot be changed. And, and to me, the mm. idea of flexibility and like always changing shapes, like Bruce Lee mentioned this a lot. To me, like it's quite... Um, I guess it's quite, it gives me peace. Whatever happens is supposed to be. That's nice. Yeah, I do remember that little bit about how like 
he's like, oh, you can never define Dao. Once mm-hmm. you think you have, then no, you haven't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you've lost it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Olivia, can can you recommend? Um, I know you mentioned genealogy. Sorry, the genealogy of morality. What are yeah. some other books or philosophical movements that you recommend? Okay, well, obviously, I like existentialism, so I'll put that out there. Um, The book that I really liked from Simone de Beauvoir was The Second Sex. Um, And you're right, you know, some of her ideas about, like, gender are definitely outdated. I think that just comes from her being part of, like, second wave feminism. Um, So, yeah, obviously, take those things with a grain of salt. Um, But I think there are other, like, great things in there as well. Um... I I actually really like like it's a short book but it's an interesting book about like justice and kind of like about legal philosophy the trial and death of Socrates um if you've ever read that I, I've never but who who wrote it okay it's it's a uh, well I guess it was Plato because he wrote like everything for Socrates um but yeah it's like a dialogue about like Socrates being um like imprisoned and then his friends try to like rescue him be like come on like we can get you out and he's like nope even though i disagree with the (laughs) decision here's why i will remain like loyal to the law Mm -hmm. um which um is really interesting um i can't say i like completely agree with him but it was still like a fun read if you're looking for something not too hard apparently socrates was ripped did you know that apparently he was like a (laughs) it was like a world-class wrestler (laughs) really I oh was that plato i honestly i don't know okay i'm not sure i will say there was this one oh i think the reading was like um can can friends be lovers or something it was by this guy called conlin it's a really short paper as well like you can read it if you're interested it's like six pages maybe but at the very end it talks about how like socrates um supposedly had this like romantic relationship kind of with the prince or like some really high esteemed like um man in ancient greece but socrates was kind of a dick and (laughs) didn't really reciprocate the relationship even though he was like known for being ugly um yeah he somehow had game like (laughs) (laughs) that's that's the real takeaway you should be yeah taking away from socrates you're ugly and you got game (laughs) (laughs) um awesome so really quickly just to summarize uh, a a few of the books that's that i would recommend is what the buddha taught by someone who my pronunciation is so i actually cannot believe they allow me in an english classroom (laughs) but uh what the buddha taught by someone's something to search that up uh nature i love nature any really Uh anything by him the Tao the Jing, highly recommended. Uh, the Myth of Syphysis. Uh, mm, right. I hope I'm saying that correct. But yeah, that, that yeah. thing. That's that a guy. classic, I think, that everyone should read. Yeah, the, the last chapter to me, like obviously it's existentialism, but the last chapter was so beautiful. Like I was like crying because it was so beautifully written. And to me that like fulfilled the emotional understanding of like, mm. it's okay if you pass away, if the world turns in a certain direction, it is all okay. And um, mm-hmm. I just thought it was beautiful. So yeah, I recommend those things. Nice, nice. So I'll leave it with this. Olivia, what's the next video? Any spoilers for your YouTube channel that you're, you're thinking of yeah. uh, releasing? 
My next video is going to be about body neutrality. Um, so have you heard of that before? Is that like not using he, uh, masculine feminine pronouns for like the moon on the or house or something? Is that what you um, mean? Um, no. So body body neutrality is like this alternative movement um, to body positivity. So whereas body positivity is like love every part of you because all of you is beautiful. Body neutrality is like um, I don't have to love things about me because it's beautiful. I'm going to think about beauty in neutral terms and instead focus on like the function of my body instead. Okay. Um, so that is what body neutrality is. And I it's becoming like more and more popular since people have kind of gotten tired of body positivity and how it's kind of become like toxic positivity and also like really hard to just love every part of you. Mm -hmm. Um but I also think I have like some questions for people who support, like wholeheartedly support body neutrality. And that's kind of what I want to delve into. Is body neutrality just like indifferent? Like, oh yeah, that's a leg. That's a knee. Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, that's a body. Like, okay. it's a body. Yeah. It, it, it sounds like, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with these two movements, but it sounds like realism, uh, for, like the realist artistic movement, which followed the romantic artistic movement and romanticism was like oh nature is so beautiful and then realism's like ah it's all right <laughs> it's cool hey, hey yeah that's a good connection i might yeah. have to like look into that now <laughs> yeah but thank you so much for jumping on olivia you're always welcome uh, your youtube videos are fantastic and yeah if anyone hasn't checked her out Go ahead and subscribe to the <laughs> sharpest jawline in the game. All right, man. Take it easy. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you for tuning into Safety Lost with Stanley Ching. If you enjoyed this, then please leave a rating or a comment. I hope you're leaving with a new idea and make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and other places that can be found in the description.